Welcome to The Brian Nichols Show. I'm your host, Brian Nichols, Associate Editor at the Libertarian Republic. And The Brian Nichols Show, as you know, we are the newest, latest, and greatest podcast on the We Are Libertarians Network. Ladies and gentlemen, if it's your first time joining The Brian Nichols Show, boy, oh boy, do we have a great episode in store for you today. But first... If you're interested, you can give me a follow on social media. First and foremost, swing on over to Twitter and follow me at B Nichols Liberty and on Facebook at B Nichols Liberty. And please feel free to subscribe to the Patreon for the Brian Nichols Show as well at B Nichols Liberty to help us keep producing this content you enjoy. And if you have a question or comment, please shoot me an email at the Brian Nichols Show at gmail.com. And as always, please swing over to iTunes. Rate, like, and review The Brian Nichols Show to help us keep on producing this content that you so enjoy. And uh, today I am joined by uh, another phenomenal guest, as has been the uh, the recent trend in The Brian Nichols Show, having these really great guests, one after another. And uh, today I am joined by Michael Johns. Michael Johns, thank you so much for joining The Brian Nichols Show. Brian, my Philadelphia brother, pleasure to be with you. Absolutely, and as Michael just uh, alluded to, so we we here we've been talking back and forth for quite a bit now, and um, didn't even realize that we're within a stone throw distance of each other <laughs> here in the Cradle of Liberty in Philadelphia, PA. So, um, so Michael, I mean, with that being said, kind of if you will, reach out and introduce yourself to my audience. Can I give them a little bit of your background? Yeah, I mean, I've got about. Um three decades now, unbelievably, of uh, political and public policy um, engagement started all the way back at the college level. Um, I came out, um, you know, having done a few uh, major internships in college, was president of college Republicans, and uh, started work at the Heritage Foundation in the Reagan year, spent five years there as an editor of their uh, quarterly magazine policy review, and then as a foreign policy analyst where I focused pretty heavily on Reagan doctrine and developing world issues, South Asia, Africa, Latin America. Uh, you know, politically, I've worked with Governor Kane in New Jersey. I worked with Senator Olympia Snow from Maine. I worked with um, a White House speechwriter to President Bush 41. Um, and then, of course, in 2009, um, pretty iconically, we were... Um, I was one of, uh, I guess, about 15 or so individuals on the founding calls for the Tea Party movement, which, in my view, point has proved really the most persuasive and politically uh, consequential movement of modern times, and maybe of all times, frankly, uh, from a quantifiable standpoint, from the number of people it's involved politically and the impact it's had legislatively and in the states. So that's, it's actually that's fun. the uh, cliff notes. That's the cliff notes version. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say cause it's funny because you mentioned so the Tea Party, um, and that was really the the precipice, if you will, into this. I'd say that the the 2010s was really this resurgence in conservative constitutionalists, and I dare say even some small L libertarian uh, values and viewpoints. And uh, it's funny because that actually it really that's kicked off. Um, up in my neck of the woods too. Uh, back we had it was back in two thousand and eight. Um, it was Didi Scozafava was the appointed uh, Republican GOP uh, person to take over. Uh, at the time was John McHugh. He was the outgoing congressman to be President Obama's Secretary of the Army, 
and Didi was to, was to be the basically the appointed, the anointed uh, next uh, congressional representative from you know, at the oh, time. Oh, this was New York twenty three. Yes, at the time it was New York well, twenty three. I was very involved in that race, and I endorsed Doug Hoffman. Doug Hoffman, and <laughs> it's right. Yeah. <laughs> so um, Doug Hoffman ended up coming in. In fact, I think I was on the verge of catching a plane up to. Plattsburgh or yeah. somewhere up there for a camp. Yeah, yeah. Very. I remember that race. Remember that race very, very clearly. Oh, yeah. and it Interesting. was a, It was a. It was a really. It was a, a very intense race, and I think uh, that pretty much was like that tipping off point for, as you alluded to, this this national Tea Party movement. So, I mean, with that being said, I wanted to really get your perspective. You know that race before you move on. Yeah. Go ahead. Interestingly, I was always able to say before that race that I had never not uh, supported or voted for a Republican in, a, in an election. I think it's probably true that I've never not voted for a Republican, but I think that was the, the singular time in my life where I endorsed uh, an individual not affiliated with the Republican Party and did so for reasons I'm sure that you fully understand and probably many of you listeners do. And that, you know, I mean, the Republican Party has to stand for something or it stands for nothing and has no meaning. And that was kind of the case. Uh, you know, in that race. And I think uh, Doug Hoffman represented really the conservative candidacy and he was a vibrant and, uh, you know, a candidate capable of winning. You know, so I thought it was uh, very symbolic. And you're right. I think it kind of paved the ground for some new thinking. I was going to say, um, that's, that's really what I want to, to start the conversation with is, is to kind of figure out. So obviously, when you started the Tea Party, there was a reason for it, and I, I don't want to put words in, in your mouth. I'm going to assume it's, it's a lot of it due to the, at the time, it was the election of a, a very uh, dangerous president in, in terms of progressive ideology in President Obama. But, I mean, with that being said, I wanted you to kind of lay the framework. What was really right. the building blocks for the Tea Party movement? It's really an important question. I'm not sure it's been properly reported because i do believe uh i hear periodically from the left well, where were you guys during the bush years and you know and some of the betrayal of fiscal conservatism and really i think things did start to percolate uh in the um at least the last year or so of the bush administration where there was concern about tarp and concern about uh the housing crisis and the way that was being managed but really when you pinpoint why is it that the tea party movement has been able to engage, by my math, probably 20, 30 million Americans in some consequential way politically. It's because they, they were looking for a voice. They were looking for an avenue for political engagement. And they really did not see such opportunities in the existing infra political infrastructure and, and organizations that they had had affiliation with. So in, in a sense, it was a classic... Um, supply meets demand story, you know, in the sense that they, the demand was out there for an avenue for individuals to collectively mobilize around ideas and around candidates. The Tea Party movement was not a partisan movement. It is not currently a partisan movement. Uh, it has always stood for really three simple ideas, adherence to the Constitution, limited government, and lower taxes. Uh, tax enough already. And um, it, one of the reasons we obviously drew on the uh, on the uh, Tea Party name, iconic Tea Party name, and 
you know, so in a sense, I think it was really an opportunity for the many millions of Americans looked around, started not recognize the direction of the country in any respect, probably starting in about 2008 and definitely in 2009 with the House uh, in control of Nancy Pelosi and Senate in control of Harry Reid. The um, White House, as you correctly said, in uh, Obama's hands with a, with a mandate in his eyes for a progressive agenda. And, you know, I think really when you look at those first two years, it, hugely important for the country, it was really singularly the Tea Party movement that was able to hold uh, progressivism at bay for those yeah. first two years because there was nothing really stopping it when you think about it. They had, as is the case now for Republicans, you know, complete control of the federal government. And I mean, you really, as as the Tea Party itself, you came in in 2010, especially with the midterm elections, and and we really brought in some strong, strong conservative, libertarian, uh, and I would say really the these these liberty-minded individuals across the board. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong. We we not only did take over Congress, but we came close to taking over the Senate. Correct? Right. Well, in 10, we we won the House. 14, we won the Senate. Uh, and as you correctly say, in 2010, importantly, it wasn't just winning the House, but the fact that you had these, you know, 50, 60 Republican members that uh, ran on Tea Party platforms, ran with support of the Tea Party movement, ran in open solidarity with it, and uh, did so, and then subsequently in the Senate as well. I mean, few people uh, may remember exactly, but, you know, I mean, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, Rand Paul. Mike Lee, these were all individuals who ran as self-identified Tea Party candidates mm -hmm. um, on a Tea Party agenda. And, you know, and part of the part of our sort of operational processes in meeting with candidates was, you know, at least from my perspective, explaining both the opportunity, but also the reality of the way, you know, DC unfortunately really works. And I think a lot of individuals, when you see some of the, the resignations, which is unusual, you know, I mean, in the first decade or two of my political involvement, you would almost never see someone leave a congressional seat unless they were, you know, appointed ambassador or, you know, we're going to run for another office or died. You know, those are like the three, <laughs> the three, the three basic uh, explanations for their departure. But you had in, um, you know, here over the last couple of years, I think you're starting to see some frustration, some recognition among principal conservatives got that have gotten there. And have sort of realized the limitations that they've had. And I think a large part of it has been just watching the unresponsiveness of the executive branch of government, uh, certainly in the Obama administration, but even in this administration to some extent, uh, and the complete disrespect and lack of enforcement for balance of power and um, you know the the uh, authority, the constitutional authority that's placed in the legislative body of government. And I'm sure you could have guessed that that was actually going to be kind of the, the direction I wanted to go. And I kind of alluded to this in our, our back and forth there as we set up the interview today. So um, part of the conversation I wanted to have was, you know, here we are, it's 2015, and the GOP um, primary looks to be a pretty intense race between the likes of a Rand Paul, a Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, obviously the three real Tea Party stalwarts that you had mentioned earlier. But then you had the likes of, you know, a, a Jeb Bush or a John Kasich, Carly Fiorina hops in. And then all of a sudden, this guy named Donald Trump hops in the race. Now, you and I right. went back and forth on Twitter quite a bit in the primaries because you went really, you know, 100% for Trump from the start. So 
I wanted yeah. to kind of get your perspective. What was it that you were like, yep, Donald Trump is my guy, and I, I'm going to say, you know, Donald Trump's uncertainty in principle, yet there's something about him I'm going to take over the likes of, you know, these these Tea Party stalwarts. I think it was persona and leadership traits um, in the sense that having sort of looked at the skill sets and personality traits that he brought to this job compared to the political culture that he, that governed almost every individual that ran against him, including some really good guys that I know and like and, you know, have supported and, and I'm just very thankful they're involved politically. But I think it's one of these things, the way I worded it, where 10 years ago, I'm not entirely sure I would have looked at it this way. And 10 years from now, I may not look at it this way. But I really think he's a man who's well positioned for this moment in time in the sense that this is a, this really requires strong leadership, um, strong backbone, and an ability, as you obviously and anyone paying attention can tell, to withstand some incredible criticism uh, in a very divided political culture and in a, and you know that includes essentially a media that is become an you know a um, addendum to the Democratic Party so I got nervous because I, I I kind of I see exactly what you're saying in terms of the media especially is that you know especially here let's just look in the past few weeks uh, let's start in the Supreme Court nomination with with Brett Kavanaugh and mm -hmm. the hysteronics that came out from not only you know individuals in the progressive movement and, and the Democratic Party but also a lot of folks in the media in the way that they've framed Brett Kavanaugh and I mean, for me, I, I look at this and saying, well, you know what? If it had been Rand Paul or, or Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio as president, they all would have had the exact same reaction. The difference is, is that with Trump, Trump, everything's been this kind of reaction, whether it, it, you know, it's him going to, right. to, to North Korea or it's, it's him appointing Gorsuch and now Kavanaugh. Um, everything about everything's the end of the world. Everything's yeah, exactly. the end of the world. Everything has it's been not a policy hysteric. disagreement. It's treasonous. It's impeachable. I literally had individuals uh, in media during the transition period before he even took office question, you know, with legitimate questions about is this an impeachable offense? Is that an impeachable offense? I mean, they've been so focused on that from the very beginning. Uh, in part because I think their policy agenda is completely stalled. I think they have a self-identity crisis. I don't think they have any demonstrable leadership, really. Uh, I think they're uh, being torn in two different directions, and they clearly have lost the working men and women, the heart and mind of the working men and women of the country. Uh, so I think they're engaged in a complete breakdown. And um, unfortunately, it really is a manifestation of fight for power than over really any principled ideals. Because, I mean, if you could go through every one of these principles, at some point in time, historically, there were ideals that were not alien to the Democratic Party. I mean, a secure border, cutting of taxes, championed by John F. Kennedy, uh, you know, regulatory relief. These are these are not principles that were historically completely alien to the party, but now all of a sudden they're just completely unacceptable. And uh, the, the the Russia uh, reaction over the last uh, week is just there wasn't so much at stake, almost laughable. I mean, because this is a party yeah. that really has 
had nothing to say as Russia, you know, invaded uh, eastern Ukraine, as it uh, took over Crimea. Uh, you know, they, they have it, no, as they, you know, killed political and jailed political opponents. This party was completely silent during the Obama administration. Now, all of a sudden, they're, you know, sort of trying to define themselves as hardliners, as, as hardliners on it. And, you know, someone who was very active in the Cold War as well, I, I just can tell you they, they were missing in action. And those on those issues, they would run from the fight every time. I mean, in 2012, they went after Mitt Romney for the whole, you know, Russia's our greatest geopolitical foe. And now it's the exact same people stepping up. They want their foreign policy back. Remember that one? Um, Now that is the foreign policy that they're embracing. And of course, the the reality is it's a political position. It's not a foreign policy position. They've not had any demonstrable concern or a principled stand on the issues of Russia, and they were completely silent as Obama, you know, didn't adhere to the uh, the red line in Syria, and as I said, in Crimea and Ukraine, did nothing, uh, and, you know, essentially allowed Russia to reemerge as a um, global geopolitical force, though I think it can be overestimated in that way. So, now this is the question, I, I gotta be tough, so to what extent looking now and here we are in 2018 obviously it was a a short six years ago in 2012 when uh we had barack obama you know saying to mitt romney as i just mentioned you know you know mitt romney the the 1980s called they want their foreign policy back you had hillary clinton with the russian reset but you know here we are in 2018 it's almost like the the roles have flipped so now obviously the the democratic party is is like you said taking this hard line stance against Russia and I, I agree. I'm sure that your position is that that's entirely due to political expediency, and we can obviously yeah. see why. But what about the Republicans? It was laughable to them back then. I mean, I'll give you oh, one example. I've never, I never even mentioned this, but um, John Stewart for the longest time wanted me on his show for you know for a few years, and they would call periodically, pitching segments, and they all sounded like setups to me. Finally, after the Crimea thing, they called. They're like, you know, can you? Can you come on Daily Show? We want to talk to you about, you know, what's going on in Crimea. And of course, you know, I'm just utterly so I'm like, you guys don't care about what's going on in Crimea. I go, what's the real angle? You know, and I ended up pass. I had my, instinctually, I knew it was sort of going to be a setup. I passed on it. And I, I don't recall exactly who they ended up having on, but it was some figure from the right. And it, it was a lot. They, it was, they, they tried to make a mockery of it. You know, like, who's heard of Crimea? Who cares about Crimea? Are, are you know, is Russia going to be in Brooklyn? You know, it, it was a kind of this uh, laughable approach to the entire incident. Now, of course, it's the complete opposite. And it's just, it's a party that is driven completely by whatever's politically expedient at the moment. And I think it's, you know, just lost its way. So what about, so obviously libertarians in general believe that the concept of non, uh, non-aggression, non-interventionism. So, I mean, right. I, I, I say this more just myself being intellectually curious how is it that we've seen this flip where now a lot of republicans i dare say would rightly in 2012 argue that yes russia is a geopolitical foe and now they're essentially it seems to me tacitly embracing this new positive relationship um from their perspective with russia and more specifically vladimir putin yeah, that is intriguing, and I think particularly so because I think there was no more opposition to Trump's candidacy than from the libertarian 
side of our movement. And I think Trump's foreign policy is emerging as not a libertarian foreign policy, but as one that's more closely aligned to some of the fundamental libertarian principles of America first and and uh, taking care of our, our homeland first and foremost. And, you know, a proper, I think, reservation about uh, military engagement and the limits of American power. Um, those are all reasonable, I think steps and well like long overdue which is another reason that i you know gravitated to trump i don't feel this country would have survived and will not survive the uh failure to get our arms around some of these trade deficit issues around the border issue around our, our completely ill-defined immigration processes and around our national security and foreign policy strategy which continues i think as you're alluding to to be guided by a period in time that has come and gone. So, you know, Russia is um, a question mark out there in, in a lot of ways. I mean, clearly in the Obama administration, they saw opportunities for advancement. Uh, Putin didn't like Obama, Obama didn't like Putin. Um, and that created a sort of geopolitical reality in and of itself. But that doesn't have to be the reality going forward. And that's why I think, you know, Trump is, genius in seizing the opportunity to meet, uh, to explore areas of collaboration, and to uh, put our foot down where necessary. I mean, his position, I think, in acts has been more hardline than, uh, you know, any uh, president in recent times with the, um, you know, the sending of uh, arms to Ukraine and the mm -hmm. sanctions and, you know, kicking out uh, 60 or so uh, embassy and, uh, um, consulate personnel and um, you know it maybe hasn't manifested in the rhetoric as, as much which has been a point of criticism but I don't think the rhetoric is as important as the acts and it's, it's funny the that, that's, sanctions that have ever been placed on Russia I was gonna say and that's funny because that's exactly a, a point I'm not sure if you're familiar with Ben Shapiro but sure uh, yeah Ben Shapiro he, he says you know Trump will be known as a man who says a lot of things and I think that's that's such a great point because Trump <laughs> does he says so much grandiose things right. it's gonna then, be a big Bartlett's chapter <laughs> <laughs> sure well um, but I think it's really important to look and see exactly you know what the policy comes out and I think you know, I dare say that there's a lot of behind the scenes that we're not seeing because people are so focused on what's being said versus what's being done. And I think there's actually a lot of these, um, you know, these strong, as we kind of keep on going back to these tea party voices who do have right. the ear of Trump. And I, I mean, it makes my heart sore a little bit because I think one of those voices is Rand Paul in terms of how we've seen this, this re restraint in, in reaching out to, to have these interventions in, in foreign affairs. Um, but then I guess now I got to ask you the question. So from the beginning, I know you mentioned like for Trump, it was really his persona and his leadership, but why, why not say, you know what? We could have a guy like Rand Paul as president over over Donald Trump and let me let me kind of just preface this because in my view I look at Donald Trump and just his brashness and you know his going out and just saying you know this is who I am just come at me and as a Republican saying that I kind of I'm, I'm nervous because I'm afraid it's going to do more damage not just to the Republican Party because I mean the Republican Party has the likes of a Lindsey Graham and a John McCain the party itself is just a, a platform but more specifically right. These, these values of, of conservatism, of libertarianism, of, of non-interventionalism, of really not hurting people and not taking people's stuff. 
Um, I'm afraid that he might do damage to the messaging. So I look at somebody like Rand Paul and I think we could have gotten all these good policy things that we've gotten from Trump from a president Rand Paul without his day may still come. His day may still come. Right. Uh, I um, am a big Rand Paul fan. I know him, supported him, had some great conversations over the years. And I think, by the way, his commentary on Russia over the last week has been uh, more on point than anyone's about, uh, you know, the, the need to be supportive of the Trump approach this, at this moment. The answer to your question, though, is I think if you accept, as I accept, and maybe libertarians didn't, but if you accept that this immigration issue was immensely threatening uh, to the country and the border is immensely threatening and the trade issues needed to get resolved now or never um and that the middle class of the country requires almost a disproportionate focus of attention or we're going to lose it if you buy into those issues and principles and the need for a fairly hardline position on on china and russia until we can resolve those relationships i think it point it pointed to the trump candidacy and in a way, I think the Tea Party movement success has been obviously in, in elevating populism within American politics to the point where for the first time in our lives, I mean, you can't find another example of people cite Reagan, but I was active during Reagan. Reagan wasn't drawing stadium crowds. Uh, this was the first populist presidential campaign uh, in our party in our lifetimes with an individual who ran really against the party ran against the party but is that a party good thing almost almost systematically opposed him um but but michael really quick i mean is that a good thing and i, I ask that because we look at in 2008 2007 2008 when when obama was running you know people on the right and i, I think rightfully would would poke fun at these Obama supporters as like these these zombies almost because of right. kind of Obama's his his populist you know this progressive populism that he was promoting and we kind of saw it take part again with Bernie Sanders to an extent but I mean we on the right I think we kind of have to have a, a come to Jesus moment and kind of acknowledge that we kind of had the same thing where people weren't actually looking at the oh policy. yeah we did they were, they were no, I, accept, at the I accepted and I'm and I'm con you know it's, I don't think I've really said much critical or anything critical really of the president <laughs> to date maybe the day will come when i do but i um i do think we need to be cognizant of that that we can we have to be a, a movement of principle and of ideas not of, of people um but i'm very comfortable with him at the helm right now very comfortable with him uh defining our brand in the party I'm comfortable with him leading our political direction and i really really think the issue for me is his policy priorities are right on target. And that's why he draws stadium crowds, because he is saying what the American people are thinking. And um, the day may come when Rand Paul is saying what the American people are thinking. Um, I do think, you know, to each leader his age and uh, his or her age. And um, I just think this, this is an age of Trump. It's a, it's a moment in time made for Trump. So you, you, you mentioned not not having the party be a person but principles so i i guess now you gotta help me here because right. i mean i hear you talking about like so for instance uh we one of the big issues for the tea party was was tax cuts 
So we get tax cuts, but then we've always been promoting the tax idea. cuts in our, in our lifetime. Right. It, but we, we've always been, you know, the, these deficit hawks. We've always been against the federal debt. And then, you know, we have an increase in spending of $1.7 trillion. And then for tariffs, I mean, tariffs themselves are, you know, cons- from a conservative economic position, fiscally, right. you know, being conservative. They're taxes. They're against, yeah, they're taxes. And they're against the idea uh, of fiscal conservatism. But so you have to, you, you know, we. Unfortunately, the, crit- the Trump critics approach it only focused on the U.S. side of tariffs. We've left it to that school of thought, and I was a part of that school of thought, and I do subscribe to the school of thought in as a sort of academic concept. But in practical reality, there has been no free market solution to our trade imbalances, and this trade deficit with China would double under certain leaders before it received a moment of their attention. I just don't think it's been a priority to them. We've seen a wholesale shipment out of this country of industries and companies. And a lot of these individuals are Washington-based or New York-based, and they haven't they haven't driven through Pennsylvania or Ohio or West Virginia or uh, Michigan and seen the impact that this has had on the country. Now, if you can't, you, you got to kind of look at that and say, that's concerning to me. Or you might look at it and say, well, Ludwig von Mises would say, let him figure it out. Um, well, you know, a lot of these individuals are, you know, um, up in age and um, they're not in a position to recreate career, careers or their lives. These are whole communities just devastated by decades of neglect on these issues. And really, in my judgment, a policy that's been designed to deflate wages, to offshore jobs, um, to undermine manufacturing domestically. And it's been done by a political and in some cases corporate elite whose allegiance has been to money over country. And and I'm not even criticizing them really for that because they've been that's their charge, sort of in their mandate. Um, but it's not, I think, from a voter standpoint, necessarily something that we should have to put up with. And I think that was the reaction that we saw in 2016. And I knew this was coming. I, um, I hate to be that person who says, I told you so, but you, I could go through some really, really big names of people who debated me on Fox and wherever throughout the 2016 campaign. So I was handing the White House to Hillary Clinton. We were just giving up and that he was not a conservative. I think there's been, you know, a, a president who's uniquely conservative. You know, he's, he's really accomplished an incredible amount under in very difficult circumstances, obviously. So I got to yeah. ask, so the, going back to the tariffs, I mean, we saw yeah. in, in 2000, I think it was 2002, Bush put tariffs. What's the Cato? What's, let me ask you a question. Yeah. What's the Cato Institute plan for re for resolving China's um, tariffs on our exports, for China's theft of our intellectual property, for China's requirement that we share ownership of any company that we attempt to establish there? And I could go on with multiple mm-hmm. additional examples of a completely unfair relationship. What is their solution to resolving that? Because for three decades, it's only it's always been this bumper sticker, free trade, free trade, free trade, 
which has just been perpetuating the problem on the China side and not resolving it. You know, so, and I just mean, before I let you answer that, yeah. I mean, my my position on tariffs is I don't support tariffs. I think the, I think we're using tariffs as a means to an end to getting rid of them. You know, so it's kind of like the deployment of, you know, the MX missile. We weren't deploying the MX missile because we wanted to use nuclear weapons. We were deploying the MX missile because we knew strength was the way to deter war. So it is counterintuitary, but it's nonetheless logical in my judgment. I think it's going to prove to be the case. We're going to learn. We're going to see what happens. But I, I believe it's going to prove to be effectual. And already you're seeing China's having conversations with us that they were not having in, yeah. in any last three or four administrations and don't get me wrong i acknowledge it and i think honestly there's a lot of libertarians who they they look at what trump's doing and and say is he playing the 4d chess you know is he saying let's do tariffs because then they're gonna see how bad tariffs are and we're gonna take the short-term pain to to get a long-term net benefit i mean i'll, I'll give credit where credit's due Trump has said in in his his speaking throughout when he I think it was when he over NATO actually where he, or maybe it was the G G seven or G eight wherever it was where he said you know my ideal world yeah let's let's get rid of tariffs and I, that kind of was like okay well let's let's do it then but I think and I don't want to speak for the Cato Institute or or you know anything like that but I mean I think that the main idea is looking at trade deficits and imbalances themselves aren't inherently a bad thing because. In the return, we're getting cheaper goods than we would otherwise be able to make it because each nation is doing things differently or doing things better. So, I mean, for example, um, I mean, I, I think it's a silly analogy, but it works, is that I have a trade imbalance with my grocery store. But that doesn't mean that it's an inherently negative uh, exchange so long as the exchange is voluntary. Now, if my grocery store started to, to you know hike up the prices more and more and more to the extent that you know i'm i'm truly getting hurt then i wouldn't trade with a grocery store anymore so i think the idea from a well in a way though in a way though it would be as if um you were surrendering the ability to use any other grocery store but the one you're going to and the ability to produce groceries yourselves so you would you really have to almost that's really the decision that i think you need to make here is are we prepared 15, 20, 30, 50, 100 years from now to have whole sectors of our economy that have tradition that are important to the country's security, to its account, to its economic infrastructure, uh, and to regional areas of this nation uh, gone for good. And so I, I think many Americans said no. I think many Americans said, you know, we need to have we need to solve this now or we're never going to solve it. But wouldn't the answer be better suited to say, you know, don't do these these aggressive tariffs that are going to increase the, the, the price of goods. And instead, let's make it so companies have more of an incentive to do business in America. So let's let's. Well, I think he's done that. I think I think it has. I think it has been a walk and chew gum policy in the sense that the, the regulatory relief, uh, you know, cutting the corporate rate from 35 to 21 percent. Um, these are these are monstrous steps, you know, that make this country easier to do business in and more competitive to do business in. And I could not imagine us, could not fathom the state we would be in with a thirty-five percent corporate tax rate. 
Mm-hmm. It, well, it just makes me nervous because, I mean, so I'll give you an anecdote. Um, you know, in my day job, I do business, you know, here in the greater Philadelphia uh, with, with, you know, medium to large businesses. And I was working with a, a company that specifically does um, it, its specialty, uh, like cutting solutions. So they, they will make special cutting tools for, um, you know, either it could be, you name the industry that they'll specially design it for. And I was doing a, a, an agreement with them and I was just talking off the cuff and, and they said, you know, we're terrified because right now we just purchased, I think it was like three years worth of steel in advance because looking at Trump's tariffs, it was going to I think it was double or triple the price that they would have to spend for the, the cost that they would have to absorb. And I don't know, like, I, I understand the, the 40 chess that he's trying to play possibly, we're hoping, right. but... I don't know if yeah, the we're goal is at the goal is to get term. rid of tariffs. Tariffs are bad. But what I mean, about the let's short-term? just start with that. Um, in the short term, they may be necessary to get some of our major trading partners to get rid of their tariffs. In a way, you might look at it simplistically as saying, "We're going to replicate your trade policy toward us." Once you do that, pretty uniformly to date so far. We've had just about every country or in the EU region that has come to us and said, all right, let's talk about how we can structure this better. And that conversation inevitably gets around to them reducing, not increasing their tariffs. So even though trying to have some retaliatory steps, the conversations aren't retaliatory. The conversations are, are really groundbreaking in the sense of seeing the sort of reforms that we'd like to see. Because in the ideal world, no country would impose a trade tariff against any country. We would have a completely free trading uh, universe, and we would succeed or fail on our abilities to manufacture uh, products and services that uh, people want. And I'm confident we can win in that game. We can't win in a game, and we haven't been winning in a $375 billion trade deficit with China in a game where the rules are completely rigged against the American worker. And so you would have to accept to not do what the president's doing, that you're comfortable with that 375 going to 500, going to 750, ultimately going to a trillion dollars. You know, at what point do the fire alarms go off, if not now? So <laughs> I guess th- that's one of those those prime cases of we'll have to wait and see what happens. Because, I mean, I, yeah. I, I sincerely hope, I, mean, I truly do, I hope that we see the, the tariffs go away. I, I think that's an ideal world, obviously. Here's why I'm optimistic. China yeah. is an export-driven economy, okay? Yeah. We, uh, exports are very important to our economy as well, but on, on a relative basis, not nearly as, as, so, as such. Um, and we have a strong domestic economy, consumption economy here that purchases American goods and will. Um, the loss of a China market is huge and it, it can hit some areas disproportionately uh, big. But I think the pressure is many dimensions times higher on China to resolve this issue. And I think they're going to resolve it. I think we're going to end up seeing an outcome that's going to be a reduction, non-increase of tariffs and and other regulatory um, impediments to free trade. Let's hope so. Well, listen, I wanted to, because we're getting close to the uh, the end here, I just wanted to 
to give you, Michael Johns, easily one of the most, I, I'll give you credit where credit's due, right? Rational Trump supporters that I've been able to talk to, and obviously for a libertarian uh, podcast, a lot of libertarians either love Trump because they think he's doing some libertarian stuff, or they hate Trump because he's not doing enough, or he's not doing things the right way. So, I mean, with that being said, I wanted to kind of give you the, the, the floor here. Let's say you know, we have two more years left in the first term of Trump. 2020, if, if the, the Democrats and progressives keep acting the way they are in this this hysterical, you know, treason, treason, Trump, you know, Rump, Russia's collusion, right. all this stuff, I think he's going to get reelected in 2020, 2024. So here we are, 2018, we're recording on July 19th. What does the world, what does America look like in 2024 after two terms of President Donald J. Trump? <laughs> The United States will be solidified as a global economic military power. The employment situation in the U.S. will be at peak heights. Wages will have increased substantially over where they are now. Um, our relationships with key regions of the world will be more mutually respectful and almost certainly improved. Our Military engagement throughout the world will likely be at least marginally diminished, even though there could be some very serious incidents between then and now that's entirely conceivable. And I think you're going to see a national level of patriotism and recommitment to some of the founding principles and genius of this country, a, a new nationalism that's, that's balanced and reasonable respectful but is you know ultimately a we're proud to be america i think that you're going to see a resurgence of that and a country that um is the most prosperous and secure in the history of the world so uh next question before we wrap up i had i had just, i'm just curious now because i mean obviously you're really plugged in here 2024 who's the uh, gop nominee too early to say on that. Um, I think that Trump has redefined the party and redefined um, the political base as the Tea Party has. And I think whoever uh, does emerge is going to have to build on the momentum that's been established. I don't see any 180 being, you know, implemented in uh, 24. So, you know, P Pence would likely um, share a lot of uh, credit for some of the success of the last of the eight year term um, and would be a very credible uh, candidate. And um, some of the individuals we mentioned, I know for a fact that presidential aspirations, they're going to run. Um, they're going to have their own messages and they're compelling ones. And these are good people. Um, you know, so I think I think we're going to see, though, from a message standpoint, is is a, a continuity, not a uh, not like we just saw in sixteen, almost a rebranding of the party. All right, and hopefully, I mean, obviously, this is a, a more uh, libertarian leading podcast, so hopefully, it's well. Sticks. Let me just say this about libertarian: libertarians yeah. are crucially important. Uh, now, my judgment is, I think libertarians have been on a, on a scale of one to ten uh, intellectually. Uh, a 10 out of 10 successful they've advanced their principles and their ideas as effectually as traditional conservatives have um politically less successful but they're a critical part of an overall coalition and we all have to sort of get along and communicate and build bridges 
not not walls <laughs> and i and you know because because ultimately this was big part of my tea party message this is about ultimately the rebranding of the republican party we're not in a political structure where we're going to see a third party emerge and win on a national level not probably in our lifetimes though i think this two-party system is failing the country we have to redesign the republican party the republican party has to be one that is welcoming to libertarians and you know that means seeing candidates that openly embrace and are comfortable with that agenda and you know you know less inclination to move outside of the republican party so the party has got to i think deal with those issues and i think it's largely doing that in generally successful way there's a lot of disappointment in congressional leadership but some of that's going to change now uh with paul ryan leaving and maybe even who knows uh, what the Senate, what the future holds for Senate leadership. I think you're going to start to see a little more idea-based leadership in the, in the Congress. And that'll be helpful for our party brand. Oh man. I, I mean, as I know a lot of my libertarian listeners, they, they want to see the, the duopoly go away. And I think that will only really have a, a good shot if we can get to a point, maybe exploring things like ranked choice voting. But I mean, that's going to be so much to discuss. That's, that's for another podcast, but I mean, with that being said, Michael, thank you so much for uh, for joining yeah, me today. Any any last words for my uh, my listeners? Stay politically involved. Get engaged with the Tea Party movement. Follow me on Twitter at Michael Johns, <laughs> and uh, keep you know staying. Obviously, this is a participatory democracy. You know, we are the country that we define it to be, and um, what's developed over the last nine years is. You know, I can't really look at any singular individual and credit them, including the president. I mean, the president's the first one to say that this is, was a movement. And he's right about that. This was a movement. It's a movement that's been built on, you know, now, um, you know, essentially nine years of, of really day-to-day political engagement on a grassroots level. That has to be maintained and sustained, I think, for us to be successful in the battle of ideas and also at the ballot box. Well, I, I, I can't help but agree there. And I think really the uh, the ideas of, of, of limited government, peace, prosperity, uh, you know, free markets, that's something that we can all at least uh, look forward and agree to. Uh, conservative, libertarian, I, I'm glad we had this conversation, Michael. I really think it's a great conversation uh, for my audience to have. So, I mean, with that being said, thank you so much for uh, for, for joining me today. Uh, and ladies and gentlemen, if you Anytime, enjoy, man. yeah, for sure. And ladies and gentlemen, if you enjoy what Michael had to say, you want to follow more and learn more, follow him on Twitter at Michael Johns. And as always, you can follow me on Twitter at B Nichols Liberty. Please take today's show, share, like, review on iTunes, share it with your friends and family. These kind of conversations are we how we're able to keep on keeping on this this movement of liberty, small government, and to be able to really help uh, you know educate, enlighten, and inform. And uh, before I go. We're still doing the uh, Don't Hurt People, Don't Take People stuff, bumper sticker uh, sale. It's going to be a, a great sale. It's a great conversation starter. Uh, right now, if you're interested in, in uh, acquiring one of these very amazing bumper stickers, feel free to shoot me an email at Show at gmail.com. But until next week, I'm Brian Nichols signing off for Michael Johns here on The Brian Nichols Show. We'll talk to you then.